Well, today we are beginning our series through the book of Genesis. So I invite you to turn now to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I've typically, I typically find the first sermon that begins a new book series to be a bit of a challenge. Um, to just know exactly how to get us going into the book. Obviously, there's uh, the, the beginning words that we find at the start of a book, but there's also always background information, a lot of which could be very helpful to know up front. And if you've ever read a commentary, you open a commentary, you find sometimes a very big introduction. You just want to get into the first you know, commentary on the text of the Bible itself, but you have all this introductory material that covers authorship, the human author of the book, and maybe when it was written in the original audience, and maybe interpretive difficulties, the outline of the book, the structure of it, all these kinds of things. And, and all of that can be very important up front before we jump into a book. But essentially what I want to do here today is really just, just get into it. I just want to jump into the first, we're just going to look at the first two verses. And uh, some of these introductory issues we will discuss a little bit today, but also even as we go through the book, uh, as they become important, some of the, um, the questions that people have, maybe some of the interpretive difficulties as well. There are all kinds of them. Uh, you probably know that Genesis is one of the books that is uh, very, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the book of Genesis and uh, a lot of questions raised about it. Um, and some of these things we will discuss, um, but not necessarily all of them. Of course, we can't cover every objection and question but I do just want to say before jumping into verse 1 that we, of course, believe as a church, as Christians, that these 66 books, as we call them, that make up the Bible, the different books within it, are all inspired by one and the same God. That Genesis is one of these 66 books. And that it is, therefore, as a book that has been inspired by Almighty God, it is not merely a book that we come to defend. That is, that it, we're, we're not, we don't come to it just simply to try to defend its presence and defend everything it says, as if we are trying to, um, to show to the world and to unbelievers that we're not crazy for believing the things that we find here. Uh, Genesis is a book that is to be proclaimed, it is to be preached, it is to be proclaimed as God's authoritative word. I think it could be tempting, whenever we think of Genesis, we think of all the different kinds of questions we have and apologetic questions, and a lot of them are very good and important, and we will cover a number of them as we go. But again, this is a book that we come to that is God's word to us. It is something that we sit under it. Uh, we don't come to it with human rationalism and then try to determine the things that we will and will not take from the book of Genesis. Uh, we are to submit ourselves to God's word. And so as Christians, we come not simply to amuse ourselves with Genesis and what it says or to amuse our curiosity about it. It is, it is no less scripture than Galatians, what we've just finished, or any other book in the Bible. And so then as, as Christians, we come at Genesis from the perspective of faith seeking understanding. We believe in our God. We are trusting in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and so we come to his word and we say, I believe, and we pray for help that we might understand our God all the more, that we might understand his word all the more, that we might believe his word more correctly, that our understanding might be corrected, that the Lord might illuminate us as we sit under his authoritative word. And so... That doesn't mean that we can't answer common questions or objectives. We certainly will. But we come at this as this is God's word to us and we sit under it as God's word. So let's read then with that in mind, Genesis chapter 1, 
beginning in verse 1. We're just going to read the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth, earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. As much as these words, these verses lay out for us some very basic truths, what we might consider to be very basic truths, particularly verse 1, they are nevertheless very profound and essential truths. Few things are as consequential as what we find here in Genesis 1. It is no accident that the Bible begins where it does. It is no accident that the subject of the very first sentence of the Bible is God himself. The Bible does not begin with a few formalities or pleasantries to get out of the way. It doesn't begin as with some kind of warm-up or as some sort of pre-defense of all that is going to follow. It just goes straight to these foundational truths, particularly about our God. There is no extended defense even right here about these claims. The truths that we find here about God are presumed here. This reveals to us key truths about who God is. And it begins to reveal to us, Genesis 1, who we are as creatures. What the universe is. We begin to see the significance of all of this right away. And I want us to come at these first two verses this afternoon from the perspective of seeing what they reveal to us about the God of the Bible. Underestimating God could be the most serious error that a person could make. Thinking too low of him or dismissing him altogether. Of course, we would think of those who reject God outright as making that mistake. But how many, even of those who profess faith in Christ, have an appallingly low view of God? So many other errors in doctrine that we discover and come across can be traced back to a bad and low and inadequate doctrine of God. So just as one example of that, I would submit to you the, the doctrine of predestination. Now, many who struggle with that doctrine, they do so because their doctrine of God is too low. It is actually ultimately too weak. It can't survive the reality of what the Bible clearly proclaims, that God is sovereign to save sinners, and the Bible proclaims the fact that man is a responsible creature. And many people see those things, and they can't abide both of those things because they can't fathom a God with whom those things can possibly stand together. So we think, well, that would be like me taking my son's arm and then forcefully using it to smack his brother, and then punishing the, my son for smacking his brother, even though I was the one who took it and did that. That's how many people view God's sovereignty. We must therefore just be robotic then, and that would make God unjust. And, and we can't fathom God in that way. We can't think of it as working out in any way. And the reason that, that we have that problem is because we fail to understand the otherness and the majesty and the greatness of God. We think of him just simply as being like me, but just a little bigger and more powerful. And therefore, if I were to act in that way, and take, that's the only way I could make my son do something like that. And so therefore, that must be how God is. Well, if you think of God in that way, yes, doctrine like predestination is going to be incredibly difficult. And we're going to stumble and trip over that because our view of God is inadequate. It's not ultimately large enough. It's not biblical, I would say. Getting a little ahead of ourselves. But there are other difficulties that can be resolved as well when we realize the God of the Bible and something of who he is and how the Bible presents him to us. Sin 
becomes harder to downplay when we capture something of God's majesty and greatness. Also, though, God's love and God's grace towards sinners in and through Christ Jesus also becomes magnified a million times over the more we grasp the greatness and majesty of Almighty God. And of course, we can easily think if the world around us would believe these things and understand who their creator is, how many issues would likewise get ironed out. And so this question, how does the Bible present God? Who is God and what is he? And the scriptures waste no time in answering this. And so the first thing we want to see as we go through these verses, point number one of our outline, as we consider the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is the creator of all things. Genesis opens with the familiar words. They may well have been your first memory verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before this verse gets to the main part of the sentence, it begins with this temporal phrase, this phrase, in the beginning. It's telling us when this activity took place when creation took place. And while it might seem like an obvious thing to say, I think it is significant to just note that the universe does indeed have a beginning, that matter is not eternal, as some suggest. Famously, Aristotle, the philosopher, said so. Many others have argued the same, that all the things in the universe, they may not have always looked this way, but they're eternal. The Bible teaches otherwise. The universe does indeed have a beginning. Likewise, time itself has a starting point. The beginning was when God created. Time is part of that creation. It marks the beginning. Creation is the beginning of time. Therefore, as we consider God as the creator of all things and God as the creator of time itself, he is one, therefore, who stands above and apart from, outside of time itself. This is what we mean when we say that God is eternal. When we think of eternal, sometimes we just think of it in a linear fashion. We think of forever in both directions. And certainly if we think of eternal life or everlasting life, it's right to think of forever into the future. But when we speak of God being eternal, we're really saying that he exists outside of time itself. That he doesn't experience successive moments of time like we do today and tomorrow as we do. Again, he stands outside of or above that, for lack of a better way of trying to put it. He is not bound by the constraints and rules of time itself. So it says here, in the beginning, God created. That word created is interesting and I think noteworthy. The Hebrew word that is used there only ever has God as the subject of that verb. This kind of creation it is talking about is only something that God can do. Some have taken this uh, to, to this, this word, the Hebrew word is bara, this word for create. Some have taken it to mean that this is therefore saying and, and meaning, I should say, that the word bara means creation from nothing. You've maybe heard the Latin phrase ex nihilo, creation from nothing. However, that, I think, is pressing this word too far. But it is a unique word. It is speaking of a sort of creation that only God Almighty can accomplish. But it doesn't necessarily, by itself, mean that he creates from nothing. However, if we are wondering 
if that's how God created, that there was nothing and then he created all things, elsewhere, uh, Scripture makes it crystal clear that that is, in fact, how God created. That I think that is, even if the word bara doesn't mean that necessarily in and of itself, that that is what's being depicted here. There was nothing and then God created. So we find this explicitly elsewhere. For example, in Hebrews 11, verse 3. There we read, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God did not take pre-existing mass and then just shape it into what we see now. Rather, he created everything through his powerful word as only God Almighty can do. Genesis 1.1 here specifically says that the object of God's creation is the heavens and the earth. That's what he created, the heavens and the earth. And I think the main focus of Genesis 1 is on the physical universe, the things that we can see. The word heavens sometimes is used in Scripture to describe the sky, the things that we would look up and behold. But it can also be used, of course, to speak of the dwelling place of God, something that we can't see with our eyes. Uh, we see that, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is praying and dedicating the temple a couple of times, he references your, uh, heaven, your dwelling place, as he is praying to God. So it can take both or either meanings. The emphasis in Genesis 1 seems to be on the physical creation. So throughout Genesis chapter 1, the heavens are used to describe the sky, the things that are above. So, for example, down in verse 20, it speaks of the birds that fly across the expanse of the heavens. Speaking, of course, of the sky. But it is possible that this initial use of heavens ought to also include the things that are unseen to us the spiritual realm, if you will. And once more, when we consider other scriptures, it is clear that the Bible does indeed very clearly and unambiguously teach us that those heavens also were created by God. So for example, in Colossians 1 verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. You hear some echo of Genesis 1. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So even if Genesis 1 is primarily describing to us the creation of things visible, Scripture is confirming to us that creation was not limited just to things physical but that everything that does exist came into existence because of God, that he is the creator indeed of everyone and everything. As Moses would have written this record, Genesis being the first of the five books of Moses, as he would have recorded this as the people of Israel were in the wilderness and preparing to go into the land of Canaan before he died, He is communicating to the people that their God, the God who brought them out of Egypt and is leading them into the promised land, is no localized deity. The God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity is not just a God in a vast pantheon of gods. He is not some local tribal deity over a certain region of the earth. He is the the creator of the earth, the heavens and the earth. So again, what a glorious and, and weighty being this is that we are speaking of when we speak of God and when we think of the God of the Bible. He is the creator. Second point, the God of the Bible is distinct from creation. I've really already been saying this, but I just want to explicitly draw this out. This is what is commonly referred to as the creator-creature distinction. 
Again, this is, on the one hand, basic, but it is essential to grasp uh, this about God. Uh, There is God, and then there is creation. There is God, and then there is everything else. They are separate things. God is above creation. Again, as we've said, he is eternal. He is greater than creation. Creation proclaims his handiwork. We see this throughout the scriptures. We see this in Psalm 19, for example. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Creation is the work of the all-powerful and mighty creator. It reveals something of his handiwork, but he is even greater than creation itself. But Romans 1 tells us what happens when sinful man suppresses this truth about God and his power and his existence that is on display in creation. Sinful man sees that but suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. And we see that this results in man replacing the worship of the one true creator God with the worship of creation itself. The worship of created things. And so many have confused, there are different ways people will do this, but there are many ways and many have confused God with creation. Whether it's worshiping the sun, the heavenly stars and the sun, the things up there that we would see, creation worship itself. There are many ways that people confuse created things with creator God and then end up worshiping creatures. But we affirm, of course, the omnipresence of God, that God is indeed everywhere. We affirm that creation reveals his handiwork, but God is not his creation. We maintain that distinction. Anything less than that will be idolatry. So if you remember when the Apostle Paul was in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and he gets to preach there to these pagans, he says to them in Acts 17, 24, as he's telling them about God, the God who made the world and everything in it, there it is again, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Temples and creation itself cannot contain God Almighty. He is far above creation. Nor do we supply something that God lacks. He's actually in need of nothing from anybody. He is self-sufficient, self-sustaining. Nothing holds God together. He is completely self-sufficient. This this is a, what Paul is preaching here in Acts 17 is a far cry from the, the pagan gods of Paul's day. It's a far cry from the pagan gods of Moses' day, from our own day. This distinction between God and then creation preserves God's distinctiveness. And it is also part of what undergirds why it is a sin to make an image of God. Have you ever wondered why that's so wrong or why that would be sinful? Well, what can we possibly make that's going to properly image this being we're talking about. Anything you try to make is going to blaspheme, ultimately, Almighty God. Again, we might think that it doesn't seem like a big deal, maybe, like a major sin. It's not like it's murdering somebody. But it is to have a low view of God, to not worship Him rightly. It will in itself be blasphemous the moment you try to create some sort of image of him. And so again, just consider what kind of being is greater than everything you could lay eyes upon. 
when you look up at our Saskatchewan sky at night and see these unending stars, a fraction of the ones that exist, what kind of being is greater than all of this such that he could create it all from nothing? What kind of a being is eternal in need of nothing, but actually, as Paul said in Acts 17 there, actually gives life to all living creatures. This, this is the God of the Bible. And these are questions that are worth, and truths that are worth meditating upon, thinking upon, considering. Number three, the God of the Bible is the unrivaled sovereign of the universe. He is the unrivaled sovereign of the universe. I just read from Acts 17, 24, where Paul preached to these Athenians that God, the creator, is Lord of heaven and earth. The very fact that he created it all makes him Lord over it all. Psalm 24 says this very thing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything is his, he's saying. On what basis is this claim made? For he has founded it. He made it. It's all his. Everything belongs to him because he has founded it. Psalm 24 says. If I were to paint a picture, it would lawfully be my painting. I would be Lord of that painting, if you will. And I think we all understand that concept. So by the very necessity of the fact that God Almighty created the universe, it makes him the sovereign over it. It is his universe. The rules of it are ultimately his. This is something that is often referred to as the universal reign of God. And we might distinguish that, we would do well, to distinguish that from the saving reign of God. Everybody is under God's universal reign. He is Lord of everything. The fullness of the earth, everything is under him. But not all are in his kingdom, are under his saving reign. That comes through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll get to more in a bit. But that, we sometimes can, can, can be confused about this issue. God is indeed ruler of all things in a universal way. But there is also a distinction to be made with his saving kingdom, his saving reign. I think we also see his unrivaled sovereignty in verse 2. Look there at verse 2 again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So verse 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse 2 shows us what that earth initially looked like. God created the earth, but it was formless and void, with darkness and the waters covering over it. And then as we'll get into verse 3 and following next week, we'll see how God then brought form and shape and beauty to that creation over the span of the six days. It is common to find commentators, including good Bible commentators, um, describing what we see in verse 2 here as chaos. And I think there's some validity to using that word here, so long as we're careful in how we understand chaos in verse 2. What's being described in verse 2 is not evil. Uh, Elsewhere in the Bible, the seas, the waters, deep waters, darkness, uh, being formless, these things can have the sense of, of evil or judgment uh, in the scriptures elsewhere. But I don't think that is what it is saying here. What this is saying is that in this initial stage of creation, the earth was uninhabitable and inhospitable to human life. And again, as I said, we will, as we go through verses 3 and following, we will see God begin to form this void and, and, 
and, and, and uh, formlessness into a beautiful and good creation that was fit for creatures of all sorts. As God creates light and brings dry land to appear and creates plants and vegetation and so on. Now, we might wonder, why, why does God create in this way? What's the point of, of creating this initial formless void in the waters and, and so on? Well, I think it is because he is showing us right away something about himself. That he is the God who brings form to formlessness. That he takes what is either not there or what might be useless by itself and creates something good out of it. And this is something then about God that we should keep in mind as we consider salvation. As we consider the necessity of a sinner to be born again, to be made a new creation. As we consider the reality of God's promise of a final resurrection of the dead. Are these things too much for him to do? And of course, this is telling us right here, right out of the gate, of course not. This is precisely God's MO, if you will, to do such things. Nowhere in verse 2, or anywhere here in these initial verses, are any of these elements, like the darkness, the deep, the formlessness and void, nowhere is this presented as any kind of a problem for God or an obstacle to him, something he's got to battle through or something like that. Rather, we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over it, likely meaning that he was sustaining this formless mass and preparing to bring about light and all else that we find in the following verses in chapter 1. If you were here when we began our series on the Holy Spirit several weeks ago, uh, Dr. Ferguson talked about this very thing here with regard to the Spirit and the Spirit's work in creation, which we'll come back to in a little bit. But the, the reason I'm stressing this point here is that there are ancient Near Eastern pagan creation stories which are often compared with Genesis. Uh, they date back to around the time that Moses would have written Genesis, some of them perhaps even a little bit earlier. And so some people will then try to say, argue from this, that, well, you see, Genesis is just one of several of these types of stories. There are common creation myths. Genesis is just one of them. In fact, many will go on to say that uh, Moses probably just borrowed from some of these creation myths, maybe the Babylonian myth or, or perhaps from what he knew in Egypt. He's just borrowing from them. And, uh, and then they'll point to verse 2, and they'll point to it as just an echo of the primordial chaos that we find in those other creation myths. And so again, part of that is just to undermine any sense that this is divinely inspired word of God. Because other creation stories exist and there are some similarities. But if you read those stories, it's very clear that they are incredibly different as well. For example, the chaos involved in the initial creation of earth in those other stories involve various gods engaging in evil and battling it out for supremacy. In a, in a well-known Babylonian epic, the god Marduk slays a very powerful goddess and then creates the heavens and the earth from her corpse. All of that being part of a battle among the gods in which Marduk is able to overcome and assert his dominance over the others. And any similarities that we might find are dwarfed by their differences. In Genesis, there is no battle here. There's no question of who's on top here. There's no question of who is in authority. There's no hierarchy of gods battling it out here. There is one creator God, and then there is his creation. It is quite possible then, as others have asserted, 
that this chapter actually forms a polemic against those pagan accounts that may well have been known to Moses and some of the other Israelites. Again, the true God will simply speak and bring things into being. The darkness and the waters, the formlessness, the chaos, if you like, are no match for the Creator. He will simply speak, and His will will come to pass, and it will be very good. This stands out dramatically from the other so-called creation epics. The God of the Bible is the unrivaled sovereign of the universe. The Spirit of God here sustains this uninhabitable mass. And God will soon bring creatures to life. And nothing stands in His way. I think other later scriptures that come after Genesis, later authors, they pick up on the significance of this. For example, Psalm 89, verse 9 Speaking of God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So even after sin has entered the world and the curse has spread throughout creation, God still rules all things. It's still ultimately his. The world and all that is in it. The raging of the sea and the waves are no threat to the God of the Bible. He is the unrivaled sovereign. Fourthly, the God of the Bible is triune. Now let me just state clearly, the doctrine of the Trinity, as it has come to be known, is not explicitly revealed in these verses. But at the very least, it is hinted at. At the very least, the seed of that doctrine is planted here. And elsewhere in Scripture, we are told with no uncertainty that creation was the unified work of the one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This doctrine of God is one of those doctrines that becomes clearer as redemptive history unfolds, as God would inspire later prophets and writers of Scripture after the time of Moses, it becomes clearer. The seed of this doctrine is, is there in the Old Testament, but it comes to full flower, if you will, in the New Testament. Again, we've talked a little bit about that in our study on the Holy Spirit. And this seed begins right here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 2. And if indeed we believe and understand that the Bible is a unified book inspired ultimately by God himself, then we need not be nervous or uncomfortable understanding that when we read about the creation of all things in Genesis 1, we are reading the work about the work of our triune God. So first off here, the, the, the hint that we have here of God's triunity is in the reference to the Spirit of God who was hovering over the waters in verse 2. Now, some argue that this should be translated differently. It should be translated as, for example, a mighty wind was over the waters. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for spirit, as with the Greek word in the New Testament, can mean wind or breath. And the word for God, the Hebrew word Elohim, you're probably familiar with, can express a superlative there are some instances where it can mean great or mighty. However, if we look at the other references to Elohim or to God here in chapter 1, they all very clearly refer to God, uh, not to a superlative. Moreover, when you have in the Old Testament the words spirit and Elohim put together as we do here, they are ordinarily translated as spirit of God. This is the usual translation. And in most places, it just simply wouldn't make sense or work to be translated mighty wind. It just wouldn't be appropriate. And so this is very clearly referring to a manifestation of God and his power. Now, if all we had was chapter 1, verse 2 here, 
It wouldn't be obvious on its own that this is speaking of a person, that the Spirit here is in fact a, a person of the Godhead. But given, what I think is the absolute clarity that we find elsewhere in Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is not just a force, but is in fact ascribed personhood. The Holy Spirit is a he in the New Testament. Then we should not at all hesitate for a moment in understanding that this is a reference to the person of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, involved in creating and sustaining the world. And if we... Again, think of what we read in the New Testament. We see clearly that the Father and the Spirit were also accompanied by the eternal Son in creation. We read from John 1 earlier where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking of the Son, Christ. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Again, everything created by God, the Father through the Son. We read, I read from earlier from Colossians 1.16, where we're told, by him, speaking of the Son again, all things were created through him and for him. So as the Bible unfolds, the mystery of the Trinity becomes clearer, though by no means are we able to exhaust our knowledge and understanding of how it is that the one God eternally exists in three persons who all share in the one singular divine essence but are yet distinct from one another by their relative personal properties, that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and so on. And again, I would submit that if someone's thinking is, well, I can't you know, very readily conceive of this thing very well, conceive very easily of such a being, and therefore that can't be, then again, I, I submit to you that such a person has a low view of God. For the eternal God, who is greater than everything we can lay our eyes upon, greater than everything that the furthest telescope can see. Could this not be and resolve with no problem, though it is difficult for us and outside of our full grasp? Again, the, the otherness, the greatness of God is essential to our doctrine of God, essential to our understanding of Scripture, lest we would squeeze him into whatever is most comfortable and easiest for our finite minds. As we bring this to a close, I just want to conclude with three brief additional exhortations in light of the God of the Bible. First of all, as we consider this being, consider the seriousness of your sin against the eternal creator of everyone and everything. Consider that your sins are transgressions, violations of his laws, the one who rules all of this, and it is him to whom we must give an account. We want to pass off sin as no big deal. It's just a little bit of this. It's just a, a little lie. It's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. As long as we're better than some other wicked people, what's the big deal? As long as this thing that you call sin just really mainly affects me, who really cares? It's not a big deal. But this... God, who created all things, says that transgression, violations of his command, is a big deal and warrants death. 
The wages of sin is death. That our lying and our stealing and our lusting and our worshiping of idols are not giving God the glory that is due His name. Our worshiping other things instead of Him. All of these things are serious violations of God's law. Moreover, consider that the God who created all things reveals himself very plainly in that creation. Romans 1 tells us that he, his, as we noted earlier, his divine essence is clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Just as we would say that a painting on earth, a good painting reveals the handiwork of a great painter, so we look up and see the creation around us and we say, see the design within it and we marvel at the one who has created it. That's what we ought to do. But man says, ah, I'm not really convinced of that. And that might seem, wow, they just need a little more evidence. No, that is, that is suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, Scripture says. This is no small thing. This is no small sin against Almighty God. All of sin, every sin, is transgression of His law. Will we not humble ourselves and stop our self-justifying before the creator of everything? Secondly, though, consider the love and the kindness of God, which is demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If our sin is an incredibly big deal against the king of the universe, if it is a cosmic treason of sorts, consider how great his love is that he would forgive, how great his mercy and grace is that he would pardon a pitiable wretch. The eternal Son, through whom and for whom all things were made, was sent by the Father, and he came to this earth taking a human nature upon himself, and he was empowered in his earthly life and ministry by the Holy Spirit to bring about redemption for sinners by dying on the cross, being buried in a grave, and then rising from the dead on the third day. In this act, our triune God demonstrates his love for us in a most remarkable way. Romans 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God demonstrates his love. That we could do nothing. That we were busy being dead in our trespasses and sins, enjoying and loving that lifestyle of sin. We could do nothing for ourselves. But God took the initiative. Christ came on behalf of all who believe in him. Took up our cause secured the righteousness that we lack, took our sins upon himself, satisfied God's wrath for our sins by dying on the cross. See the love of God in this. The God who spoke creation into being has also promised that everyone who believes in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will indeed be pardoned. We are forgiven of our sins and we are granted eternal life. That one day when the Lord Jesus returns, we will be raised with resurrected bodies forever to dwell with our God in the new heavens and new earth, the new creation. Can our God accomplish this? He demonstrates right at the start of Scripture, nothing is too great for Him. What love and kindness God has shown us in Christ. It's magnified by the description of his greatness that we find in the Bible. And so thirdly, finally, be confident in the God of the Bible. Consider his majesty and his greatness. Consider the power of his word to bring into being all that exists from nothing. Again, this is the God whose word we are trusting that all who believe in Christ Jesus, his son, are forgiven, are justified as a gift of his grace by believing, not by working ourselves up to it. 
Can anything stop God from bringing you safely home? Can anyone snatch you out of his hand? Will anything stop him from raising his people from the dead on that last day? Trust him. Trust him to preserve you. Hope in him. Place your hope in him. He demonstrates us for us right here at the beginning of the scriptures that your hope in God and your trust in him and your taking him at his word is right and good and it is a well-placed hope. Don't be cowed by the tauntings of unbelieving man, by the arrogance of our world. This account of God creating all things is a comfort for his people. It is there for your comfort because this is your God if you are trusting in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there aren't words to describe how great you are. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, that we can say with absolute certainty that you are good, that you are great, that you are worthy of praise, even as we acknowledge at the same time that your greatness is beyond our ultimate comprehension. Father, in light of your holiness and greatness, our sins that are ultimately violations of your law, are truly great, that our sinfulness was truly wretched. And yet we are told that this is where we see your great love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we don't need you to give us everything we ever want to know that you love us. You have given us pardon. You have given us Christ as we believe in him. I pray that we would take courage in this. I pray that we would be strengthened by this. Father, help us to believe what your word reveals to us about who you are, about your greatness and awesomeness and power. Banish from us the fear of man that is so pathetic and yet we feel it and struggle with it. Free us from it, that we might unashamedly worship you and proclaim your greatness and proclaim your mercy in Christ. Father, as we go from this place and as we consider the sky above, help us to recall that it proclaims your handiwork and your glory. And may we indeed worship you For you are not only great, but you are also merciful to us. And so we do praise you, we do give you thanks, and we do this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.